Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Sarah Pettigrew, Director of Energy Investments at Envico Capital Corporation up in Calgary, Canada. During the episode, Sarah walks through Envico's investment strategy in the non-op and mineral space and breaks down some of their recent deals in the DJ and Bakken that they've executed over the last 12 to 18 months. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Sarah had to say. Well, Sarah, good afternoon, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, Tim. Thanks for thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. You bet. You bet. So, always love our, our Canadian counterparts in the mineral space. Been good to us down here. You got Glenn and the Heritage team, and David Spiker and the team at Freehold, and of course, CPPIB, and they've been good end buyers. And so, you guys have started to get a little more active on the royalty and non-op space in the last year or so at the lower end of the market, but you just did your largest deal. So yeah. I'm really excited to have our audience get to know you all a little bit better. It's essentially an income fund, right? So this is you're looking for yield and this is a these are great asset classes for that. So it makes sense that you've start you're starting to do deals in this asset class down in the US. But let's paint a little context. You're, you're sat in Calgary right now. Where did you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Have you been in the all patch your entire career? I I was looking through your LinkedIn earlier preparing for this. You started the engineering route and started to get into banking. Now you've been on the principal side uh, the, the last two steps. Right. So, but, but over to you. Sure. Yeah. No, it's it's been a bit of a, a windy road, a bit of a windy career path. But yeah, you know, I was born out east. I was actually born in, in Toronto, but my parents early on saw the opportunity out west. So we moved to Alberta when I was quite young and first started out in, in Edmonton. I kind of spent my uh, elementary and junior high school years up there, moving to Calgary as an older teenager. Ended up staying in Calgary for university. So I went to the good old U of C, where I did a degree in civil engineering, which may not be a natural fit for the oil and gas industry. But when you're growing up in Calgary, and when you're based here, it it just honestly, it just sort of happens. So I I interviewed for an internship position with Mobile, which was Mobile Oil Canada at the time, and did an internship with them where I got to work on the Sable Island offshore energy project. And they kind of trained me up as a junior reservoir engineer, which was a fantastic experience. And then I was kind of hooked. And from that point, I was able to kind of morph and shape my civil engineering studies to kind of fit the oil industry. So I was able to take a lot of geology courses and hydrodynamics courses and, and that kind of thing, which would be useful because I, you know, with that experience, I, I wanted to stay in the oil and gas industry. So Mobile hired me back as a graduate. And then I transitioned to BP shortly after the Exxon merger. Uh, I was still BP Abmanco at the time. I stayed with them. It was actually gosh, 13 years with that organization, given that Apache eventually bought out BP Canada. So it was really, I didn't leave BP. It was just uh, the purchase transaction that uh, that facilitated that. But that was fantastic. You know, working with a global company like that, I did, I was able to do three years working in the North Sea based in Aberdeen. And then Moved around in several different roles, production engineering, lots of reservoir engineering again. I did some corporate planning at BP. So it was a great experience, you know, that they kind of move you, they move you around every every two or three years. And that was uh, highly, highly valuable. 
And then you made the plunge into the dark. Yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. And I, I look back on that. It's like, I'm not, there's, there's many different factors as to sort of push me that, that direction. My dad was always on the finance side. And I think it was something I always wanted to try. And I was recruited by Scotiabank because they were looking for somebody for their energy mergers and acquisitions team where they wanted the, the technical background, particularly the familiarity with reserves and valuations. So somebody with that experience who had um, some good business sense as well. And because of my experience with planning out capital programs and making decisions as to capital allocation and that kind of thing, it was it was a really it was a really good fit. I had a lot of fun in that role. It was pretty intense. I mean investment banking is always kind of intense, but I learned a ton. I loved that 30,000 foot view of the whole basin and it wasn't just the Canadian basin. We we uh, we worked with our US colleagues as well. That was amazing and and it, and it was super super enjoyable. At the time, that arm of Scotiabank was headed up by Adam Watrous, who then left to start his own private private equity firm. So I was lucky enough to join the Watrous Energy Fund from there and spent a spent a couple of years in in private equity before joining here at at Invico. It's a pretty special place here. It's pretty it's pretty cool. Uh, I really like the story. I really like the the diversity here, not only in terms of the people, but in terms of the strategy. So not only are they focused on energy, but their 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 flagship investment product also is involved in real estate and film and television and accommodations and healthcare and, and a, a few different a few different sectors. So it's been really uh, interesting to be a part of. That's great. And and Vico wasn't started a few years ago. It's been around for you know a few decades, right? So yeah, we would love for you to to talk about the Invico story a bit. But just curious, I mean, I'd love for you to talk about the energy strategy and how it's evolved. It really looks like when you came on, it really started to ramp up, and you are overlooking the non-op and royalty strategy for them. You know, going through your career non-op and royalties doesn't really, you're with majors and large independents. Mm-hmm. Scotia is going to be kind of your upper old bracket bank in, in the Canadian space. The only thing I was kind of thinking about, and I really hold a lot of esteem with with Adam Watrous. I've been lucky enough to get to know him. And I, I think he's one of the more original thinkers in oil and gas. And uh, oh, absolutely. Love, yeah. love picking his brain and just listening to him talk. He's always kind of strikes me as a bit of a mad hatter, but really, really insightful. And so I just kind of think, okay, you're you're at Scotia with him for three years, another three years on the principal side, mm-hmm. and you probably start to have a keen understanding of market dynamics and how to look at things. And so not up in royalties, not being your immediate track record from an oil and gas perspective. I mean, engineering is engineering. Did mm-hmm. you foresee from a macro situation, investors need yield? non-open royalties is an interesting investment product for that, or is it were you recruited by Invico? I'm kind of curious how you landed as the the head of stewarding the ship of non-open royalties for Invico. <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm full on stewarding the ship, but uh, but we do. It's an interesting question. I, you know, they've built out one of the largest private oil and gas companies in in North America now with the with Strathcona, and they have so through them they have access to all sorts of engineering and technical talent and valuation talent. So in a way, 
I was having less of an impact there for Adam. And uh, I wanted to be somewhere where I could make make more of make more of an impact if, if that makes that makes sense. So I, I I started to get to know the folks, the folks here at Invico and started to chat with them. And yeah, I just thought it was a really unique, it puts them in a, a unique space in terms of being a buyer. And that's where you know we've had a lot of success in the last year and a half is because there's not a lot of competition for what we are looking for, for what's going to make sense for us. So the investment product that Inbico manages that is kind of the most important in the in the energy space is their IDIF or the Inbico Diversified Income Fund. And that is that is now three almost 380 million in money under management uh, as of the end of April. And about a third of that, or 35% or so, is uh, is invested in energy. And so they looked at non-op and royalty as a way to generate income, generate yield in, for, the, for the unit holders of that fund. And, in, and, and the unit holders are high net worth of IRAs. What, what, what does the typical look like? They are... They may be high net worth. They may be accredited investors. They may just be savvy investors who are buying the product from their broker. It's widely available. It's not really restricted. We have a few institutional investors, but generally this is a, a product that can be in anybody's portfolio. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Opportune LLP for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leading global energy business advisory firm, Opportune is well positioned to provide world-class technical, financial, and operational capabilities to minerals and royalties companies. Whether it's back office outsourcing, resource and reserve definition, land due diligence and administration, GIS mapping, valuation work, data and system integration, financial reporting, tax advisory, or buy and sell side assistance, Opportune LLP has got you covered. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Is your team interested in de-risking their underwriting on minerals acquisitions? What about maximizing the value of your minerals on exits? Source Energy is pioneering energy intelligence to help you stop guessing when, where, and if wells are going to be drilled and completed on your minerals. If you're interested in tracking daily frac crew activity, buying white space before permits are filed, buying permitted acres just before the rigs show up, buying minerals at permit pricing when drilling is in progress, buying ducts with imminent flush production, or maximizing the value of your permits and ducts anytime you exit your minerals, then please visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. I also want to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Now, how has inflation, the oncoming of inflation affected really the demand for, for energy as a hedge on inflation? Right. Royalties within that product. Is that directed the strategy at all or is it still value buying? No, it's, yeah, it's still value buying. Of course, any 
commodity investing can be a natural hedge to to inflation. And we are still seeing that. We are still seeing with the fund so focused on cash flow and yield with the commodity prices the way they are, that's just done nothing but go up. So we're not really seeing as a as a royalty player and as a even as a non-op player, we're not really seeing the pain of inflation yet. There's a few things in some workovers are getting more expensive and that kind of thing. But with the pricing the way it is, you know, we're, we're certainly not seeing the pressure of inflation on our cash flow and uh, the yield we want to bring to the investors. I should have checked this kind of Canadian dollar versus US. Are you experiencing the same type of inflation in Canada as you are, yes. as you are in the US? I mean, I just follow the monetary policy of the US government. We printed a lot of money during, during COVID. I don't think we're unique in that. Respect. No, we're the we're the same up here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're yeah. you know we're looking at six percent inflation up here as well. Yeah. Okay. Kind of lending itself to a non-op strategy. I think you talk about six percent inflation. One, I know in Canada in particular, here in the U.S. as well, the commercial debt side of the business has become more and more restricted. There, I know banks are just from transactions I've worked on are layering in the inflation and you know whatever you could get just for PDP. Very. Mm-hmm. Conservative deals, I would say the cost of capital is almost doubled. It's not mm. at A, availability and B, cost of capital. Private debt or alternatives to commercial lending become options you need to fund your ongoing operations. And so selling off non-op to direct buyers like yourselves becomes interesting because you, you can't do it through a revolver, you know, RBL redeterminations, all that stuff, right? So we'll get into that in a little bit on the, on the non-op side, but Mm-hmm. Taking a step back, three, 380 million, around 30% exposures, oil and gas and energy. Walk me through kind of milestone deals and when did yeah. y'all start investing in, in oil and gas and energy? Yeah, uh, it was it was actually it was actually before before my time. So there were some some U.S. assets already in the portfolio when I joined, a few Canadian assets as well. But we've really started to grow. I'd say in the last 18 months, two years, 18 months, probably our, one of our First really exciting deals. Actually, I shouldn't say first. <laughs> An exciting deal we did last summer, which really gave us a good toehold into the royalty side. Last summer, end of the summer, 2021, the $19 million deal was a pure royalty deal in the DJ Basin. And actually, most of our U.S. Assets prior to that were also in the in the DJ Basin. You know, this one it was it was a great opportunity. It was a package that Invico had previously looked at before I joined, but it was right before COVID happened. So I think you know at the time Invico wasn't the top bidder, and the deal fell apart through COVID. And they went back because they had made some commitments to like the seller made some commitments to their own investors. So when they brought it back on the market, they did a targeted process. Instead of doing a broad market process, they targeted those organizations who had previously showed interest. And of course, they came back to us being, I think we were the, we were the second, third highest bid at the time. Um, so we were more than happy to take another look at it. So I think we were successful in for for a couple of reasons. One, it was only it was a targeted process, so they only targeted folks that were that, that they knew could execute on the deal. Two, we are uh, we kind of pride ourselves on being quick closers, doing all cash deals, no financing conditions. So they wanted to work with us on that. So sometimes we're not even the top bid, honestly, but because we can close quickly and with all cash, um, we're often the preferred counterparty. And and because of their motivation to sell, we were able to get this for, you know, what I think is a, a lower multiple, what we thought was a lower multiple, lower cash flow multiple than um, than what we typically see up here in Canada. So 
we transacted at a multiple just under six times cash flow, which was for a royalty deal with with quite a bit of upside. There was quite a few ducks and permitted wells as, as part of that package, whereas something similar in Canada would be close to 10 times cash flow. So we were quite happy with that, and, uh, with and that when result. You're, when you're doing the Canadian benchmark, that is a royalty deal? or that's a ro- That is a royalty deal, yes. Yeah, so it's just okay. comparing royalties to royalties, yeah. And our and our strategy, you know, in uh, which may set us slightly different from like the freeholds and the heritages and, and, and the big guys, the prairie skies, is that, you know, they tend to stay kind of behind the drill bit. So they try and amass a land position that in plays that they think are going to be really lucrative in the future or that are going to be working with counterparties that are going to be drilling several wells in the future. Whereas we are more focused on the PDP. We That's what we put most of the value on. And if there are upside locations, then really that's just, just gravy. We don't tend to pay up for, for a lot of the upside. So that maybe puts us on a slightly different footing than some of the larger royalty outfits, um, especially north of the border. So you guys, you make your first royalty splash in the US in the DJ Basin. Mm-hmm. You said you had some existing investments there. Was that specific to the DJ or was it general Rockies, like a little Bakken, a little bit of both. I, I know from talking to groups in the past, it's it's pretty common, whether it's on the operated side or the royalty side, to freehold did this, for instance. They dip their toes in the Bakken first. And why is that? Because the geology and the rock are very similar over the border. And given mm-hmm. you're an engineer by background, and is, is that part of it? Is just the familiarity with the rock? Or is it familiarity with the operators or a little bit of everything? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's a little bit of everything. Like I said, we had some working interest assets in the DJ prior to making this royalty acquisition. So there was familiarity with the operators. It, it was actually, funnily enough, we had a working interest in, we already had a working interest in a handful of wells that we ended up buying a royalty interest in, in the, in the, in the Copper Trail deal. So so, so yeah, we're familiar with the area. We're familiar with the players. We see the DJ as still having a lot of value compared to say the Permian, right? That's why we've chosen to to play there. And that's where we've seen the opportunity, you know, to to get the value that that we're looking for and not being still find it expensive as much as we'd love to dip our toes into the Permian. It's still it's still tough. It's still expensive to to do that from you know, from our from our perspective. How have y'all kind of wrapped your head around the political or perceived political risk, the DJ? Well I think it's you know, it's funny. I think perspective is everything. And we in Alberta and Canada, those those very same issues have been on our laps for a long time. So, you know, the way you know, the way we see Colorado, it may seem restrictive from a, a lower 48 perspective. It actually is very because they're you know quite highly one of the more highly regulated states. But here in Alberta, we, we kind of seen that same level of rec- regulation. So to us, it's actually quite normal. <laughs> So what that that might maybe maybe that seems odd, but yeah, like the political risk down in Colorado is very similar to what we deal with in Canada every day. So it it wasn't uh, anything foreign to us. No, I mean that that's really interesting, and the fact that you had operation operated working interest investments in the DJ Mm -hmm. already Mm -hmm. with all that, and then it's it is going to be less crowded, quote unquote. Yeah, Um, and so it's a better you know, opportunity to be competitive on a bid, right? So I think all those things make sense. And then, so fast forward now, uh, we'll talk about the most recent deal. Mm-hmm. And between that and the the Copper Trail deal, it was close September of last year, and this recent deal you announced June 15th. 
2022. Yeah. It was a $32 million non-op deal in the Bakken. So yeah, yeah, like you yeah. kind of break it down and went into that. And that was uh, a non-op led deal. The other one was a royalty deal. So just opportunity driven, or maybe you're seeing a little bit more on the non-op side. I know yeah. we talk about this offline, so curious. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely, you know, we're whether it's non-op or whether it's royalty, we're really kind of opportunity agnostic. This is just something, this opportunity really just came across our desk. It was a publicly marketed process. And we, when we dug into it, we, we, we thought we might come out ahead on this one because it was a wellbore only deal. So this was straight up PDP only production from from the well bores. There was no upside. We wouldn't be even even if the operators decided to drill a well right next door, we wouldn't have uh, a working interest working interest in that new well. So because this was a straight up PDP straight up well bore deal, that's not going to be a fit for a lot of traditional oil and gas companies, right? So we we were kind of. I'd say unique buyers from from that perspective. So that piqued our interest. We thought we could maybe, you know, get a get a good deal because there, there we didn't see that there'd be a lot of other buyers uh, for something like this. And we we liked it. It's, it's something that's going to double our U.S. production, increase our production as a whole by by a third. So you know that adds an extra for 2022. It'll add an extra around 650 BOEs a day for us, which will bring us close to that 2,700 BOEs a day mark, which would be, that's definitely our high water mark and something that we're quite excited about. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties, who's been a leader in the minerals and royalty space since 1997. With the ever-changing landscape of the energy industry, Noble's team urges EMPs, mineral funds, and private families to rethink how they buy and sell their minerals. Noble's legacy and experience will assist in delivering effective solutions to EMPs and private owners alike on how to best maximize their mineral ownership in this ever-changing market. If you're interested in having a conversation about what might be the best solution for your company, fund, or family, then please reach out to Chase Morris at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com or Shannon Manor at smanor at nobleroyalties.com. Need energy industry management experience at your fingertips? Opportune LLP, a leading global energy business advisory firm, has the capabilities needed to overcome your minerals and royalties team's technical, operational, and financial challenges. To learn more, search Opportune's podcast E2B, Energy to Business, on Apple and Spotify Podcasts, where Opportune examines emerging financial and technology trends and provides a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Predicting operator behavior is the name of the game in the mineral space, but using permits and relocations alone to do this is not enough. Detecting well pads and frack ponds in order to see which permits are on the rig schedule, discount permits that won't ever be sputted, and determine which ducks are next up on the frack schedule is key to de-risking your underwriting. By using satellite imagery and AI, Source Energy shows oil-filled well pad construction before permits are filed, shows frack pond filings even before the crew arrives, and shows pinpoint frack crew movements daily, so you can get ahead of drilling activity and completions. If you're interested in leveraging this technology to revolutionize your ground game, then please feel free to visit www.sourceenergy.com minerals or email info at sourceenergy.com for a free demo. Sorry, Invico makes a monthly distribution. Uh, would you mind sharing what, what's the targeted distribution percentage and 
when you reverse engineer that into the deals you're looking at, what what are the what are the yields you're looking to deliver, baking in downside protection, everything, make sure you can achieve that distribution for your clients. Right. Yeah. So we uh, are we target a monthly distribution rate of approximately eight and a half percent for our unit holders. You know, because we look at really PDP weighted deals, we try and we try and execute that for at a discount of about 15%. So if we can execute a PDP deal at PV15, then that's something that's going to be a target for us. However, you know, most recently we've been able to do better than that. So if we can execute that, then then we're highly confident that we've got some protection there to, to deliver that distribution. Are yeah. you looking for more mature production? Uh, are you hedging quite a bit or- to lock right. in those distributions. Talk to me about yeah, the financial yeah. engineering that you guys are doing. Right. Yeah. So the other, I think there's a happy medium in terms of maturity with an asset like we just purchased in North Dakota. That was highly diverse. You know, there was over 900 well bores in that deal. So you have some that are fairly new. You have some that are quite mature. Um, so that diversity kind of gives you that happy medium. We'd be less comfortable with a whole bucket of brand new wells that you know that haven't um, particularly when we're dealing with horizontal shale wells um, you want something that's kind of turned the corner already in terms of their decline do you want it's ideal if they're kind of out of that transient phase where the decline's a lot more predictable but on the other hand we t- also tend to avoid assets that are on the other end of the spectrum when they're far too mature because you don't have that long life cash flow ahead of you so we do like a happy medium and in terms of hedging, yes, our strategy really is to try and um, so we, we try and minimize cost, number one. So we tend to look at costless collars. And then number two, we look at, so let's say we do our valuation, for example, with this North Dakota deal, we did, it was all based on April pricing, price everything on strip. So 2023 was around $90 when we when we looked at that. So when we do our hedge, we want to make sure we can try and lock in a good 40 to 50% of our production at around $90 for next year. So that's really our goal with hedging. We don't try and when you try and make money on a hedge, um, it's going to be a losing battle. So we try to look at it as an investment protection. You know, we, we try and get, we try to look at about, about 40% of our production and at about, you know, have that floor of the costless collar at the price we, we did the valuation at. Yeah, you just want to make sure you can cover your distribution and that's right. You're doing all that's cash, right. which which gives you right. a little leeway on the hedging strategy. Right. Right. What about debt covenants and everything and, and meeting that. So fantastic. Are you guys doing you know little little deals here and there in between? Or or is sure it, is are, it yeah. really been just these two large ones? What what's the no, so it's um like I said, so we're 2,700 BOEs a day now, and we have a team of four of us. So our, the energy team at Invico is four full-time people, and we have two part-time people as well on the accounting side. So between us and myself, there's our managing director, Kurt LaBelle, who is very well-connected and very, very well-known in the industry up here. And we have our landman, Bruce Cameron, who is, again, he's the landman. <laughs> so again, very connected. So we've been able to do smaller deals just through a phone call, right? We had an, we had, for example, we did a deal in January where the counterparty were former coworkers of uh, of the team, and we were just able to pick up the phone and ask if they were interested in looking to divest their their non-op property. So that counterparty had just finished doing a larger deal, and part of that was a small non-op piece that we didn't think they'd be interested in. It turns out we were right; they were willing to to divest of it and they were looking for the capital to drill some wells. So it all kind of, uh, it, it all kind of worked out. So that was a small six and a half million dollar deal we did up here first quarter this year. 
So it's, it's kind of, yeah, it's definitely lots going on all the time. And we also do lending deals, right? So there's, there's a there's a lending strategy too as part of uh, as part of the fund. So we've got, you know, we 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 look at there's been opportunities because the, the of course the large big banks aren't don't have those opportunities. They don't they, they're not lending to your to your small and, and medium producers anymore, particularly on the in the junior space, right? So we can fill a gap there with some we do mezzanine lending and fund capital projects and, and and that kind of thing as well. So we're definitely not just on the non-up and royalty side. There's uh, some opportunities on the lending side as well for us. That's great. And so would you say, just for those listening that may have the right non-up or royalties asset with the right production profile and everything, deal size range, What what's too small? What really isn't worth the brain damage? And 32 yeah. million is the largest deal you guys have done yeah. in the non-up yeah. royalty space to date. Yeah. Is that... Could, could it go to 50 or is that really kind of pushing the upper bounds? Just give it a general range and that's what you typically look at. You know, I think I think 50 is definitely doable for us. And I certainly wouldn't shy away from a deal that size. And on the on the lower end, I mean, we've done deals that are 1.4 million, 1 million. So, you know, we're pretty nimble and we're we're pretty easygoing. We're, we're very flexible and we're very creative in the way we can get deals done. So well, yeah, let but, me ask you deal size in a different context. You guys now have positions in the DJ and the Bakken. Mm-hmm. Um, will you step out in other basins? And if so, what is the minimum footprint needed to justify doing that? That's a great question. We would still focus on, I mean, ideally that would be our starting point, kind of keep it within the the DG, the DJ and in the Wellston. If we were to step out, you know, I don't think there would be much of a much of a minimum. It would have to depend on the on the quality of the asset. Like for example, before we did this thirty-two million dollar deal, we actually had three wells in the Williston where we had a small working interest in. So you know, we did that. We did kind of a farm-in deal. We we're able to obtain some working interest through a farm-in. So really, yeah, it just depends on the. It depends on the deal. Depends on the quality. Like I said, we're we're flexible. We and we can do things quickly. Okay. Yeah, because uh, you know, when when you're looking to be a production buyer, typically the zip code isn't as important, right? It, it's right. Like making sure you're diversified, well count, and right. Yeah, that's been that's been definitely working for us. A small working interest in several well bores. It protects you from putting all your eggs in one basket, right? You're not you're not focusing solely on a drilling program. One well goes down, you don't really notice it. <laughs> like really. But, you know, we try and keep on top of things the best we can. We try and keep good relationships with the operators. I mean, that's also certainly something we concentrate on as well. Having good, strong, knowledgeable operators that we work with is is fairly key as well. So if it was that, I mean, that could be something that influences an outcome of the deal or whether or not we'd look at something. If it was an inexperienced or an operator that didn't have a good reputation, that could certainly affect our decision to pursue it. Okay, great. Well, very good. Well, what's kind of the closing comments when folks in the space are, are thinking of Invico, kind of the main takeaway? I think we have addressed the main deal criteria, but, and it's been helpful for me as well. We've chatted multiple times, but I, I didn't really pin you all as more of a pure production buyer, well only type deals, et cetera. And that really mm-hmm. categorized you in, in the buyer universe for sure. But over to you to, to close it out. And again, I appreciate you you coming on. Yeah, no, thanks for, for having us. Yeah, we are always, because we are a 
kind of like a mutual fund. We always have money coming in. So we're always looking to put that capital to work. So happy to look at non-operated production, PDP weighted deals, and definitely PDP weighted deals on, on the royalty side as well. Really, we are happy to... Really, the possibilities are endless <laughs> with it within Vigo. We're highly flexible and highly successful at executing these deals. Fantastic. All right. Thanks, Sarah. Appreciate you coming on. All right. Cheers, Jim. Thanks. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Minerals and Royalties Authority is a specialist advisory firm focused exclusively on the oil and gas minerals and royalty space. With our leading content platform and thought leadership, our team is looking to continually bring awareness to the minerals and royalty space in order to help companies and investors form new partnerships and buy and sell more deals. If you're interested in learning more about how Minerals and Royalties Authority can help your team through our offering of consulting services for business development, content creation, executive search, asset divestiture, and investment buy-side advisory, then please send me an email at tim at mineralsauthority.com. Thanks and see you next time.